Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today's Voices of Conservation Science. Um, today we are in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, but instead of Studio 300 Lewis, we're here in what I call Studio Zoom. Yes, we are doing the podcast now from uh, or via Zoom because of the global pandemic. But the podcast is still moving forward, and uh, we're very happy that we are able to do that. I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. Today, I'm here with Kristen Schweitzer, and she is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, we're very excited. You're our very first Zoom podcast interview. Um, and so we're, we'll see how this works. I think it's going to work great. Um, so, Kristen, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and just some information about that and some of your, your uh, uh, education background. I grew up in Rutland, Vermont, um, and I did my undergrad at the University of Vermont, getting my Bachelor of Science in Environmental Sciences with a concentration in Conservation Biology and Biodiversity. And so I moved to Bozeman in August, this past August, to join Dr. Laura Burkle's lab studying pollinator conservation. Um, I'm working towards my master's degree. It's been really great so far. Where is Rutland? I'm not very familiar with Vermont. If you could just kind of give me an idea of is it the northern end, southern end, where's Rutland? It's like southern central Vermont, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, Burlington is what, what where most people know. That's in northern yeah. Vermont. Um, yeah, but Rutland's right next to Killington Ski Resort. And so what's what's Rutland famous for? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's famous for too much. We have this really good milk brand that's like, that's distributed just throughout Vermont, but it's like our kind of pride and joy. <laughs> we also uh, make Westminster oyster crackers, which are distributed like at least throughout New England. Yeah, for some reason, those sound familiar. Maybe I'm just thinking of oyster crackers, but yeah, oh, no, I like oyster crackers. Yeah, and I like milk, yeah. so good, good, good deal. So a lot of dairy <laughs> uh, land around that part. Is that yeah, yeah, Rutland's surrounded by several big dairy farms. Okay. So, what compelled you to pursue this career in conservation? Being surrounded by such beautiful mountains and landscapes and wildlife as I was growing up definitely uh, was a big part in me pursuing conservation. I really wanted to help protect those ecosystems for the animals that relied on them. And there are just so many environmental problems and endangered wildlife species that really need people fighting for them. So I kind of decided to fight for bees because they're such a vulnerable <laughs> population and they really need people on their side. <laughs> and a lot of their declines are resulting from various human activities. So I feel like we should be the ones to be trying to fix the damage that we've had on them and their habitats. And so how, how early did you know that you wanted to start getting involved in conservation and as you put it, fighting for them. Was this something that started when you were three years old or did it kind of evolve as you, as you were growing up? 
I think when I was really young, I always really loved nature and animals, but it wasn't really until I probably got into high school where I started developing the idea of pursuing environmental science as a career. Um, I took like an environmental science class in high school and then in college I got involved in some research projects with like various PhD students and I ended up doing a lot of work with bees. So really my undergraduate was like where I focused in on bees, but for years before that it was kind of building up into pursuing a career in environmental science. And so you mentioned high school, was that... Would, would you say then that, that, that it was that class that you took or, or was it a series of classes or just more exposure to things in, in, in the high school, of course, but also maybe in the news media and those kinds of things that was starting to build this foundation or was there yeah. something that just triggered you in high school? I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I don't really have a moment where I'm like, this is what made me pursue environmental science. It was getting a better understanding of environmental issues as I got older. And then we didn't have a lot of environmental classes available at that time. I'm sure they've expanded them a lot since then. Um, but I took the one environmental class and then my biology class was really interesting. And we had an environmental club in high school. So I was part of that as well. And I think it just kind of built on itself and environmental science became like this topic where I could see myself having a career in and I didn't feel that way about a lot of different um, careers necessarily or like topics that I could be studying. And so you, when you went to the university of Vermont, did you start out just right in environmental science? You said, wow, there's a degree that I want. That's it. And, and that's matches perfect. And, and you knew that was going to be your degree and that you were going to do something with a natural resource agency or an NGO? Did you know that? I did start right off with environmental science as my major. Um, and I think part of that had to do with the fact that at UVM, um, there were a lot of requirements for environmental science majors. So I wanted to get going on it really soon. And I felt like confident that it was at least in like my top couple career choices. And UVM has um, the Rubenstein School for the Environment and Natural Resources, which is a great environmental school. And it's so focused and they've got like several different really interesting majors you can do and concentrations within environmental science. Um, so I just like felt really good about the people I was working with and the classes I could take and the professors there. Um, I don't, I didn't ever really have a specific career path in mind. Like I wasn't like, this is the job that I want. And this is how I, these are the steps I have to take to get there. Um, and I don't, I still don't necessarily really have like one job in my head that I want, <laughs> but, um, all the jobs that I could see myself doing within the field seemed really interesting to me. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's awesome. And, and, and just kind of continuing to think about this and and how you developed in, in your kind of career trajectory, if you will. Did you spend a lot of time in the outdoors growing up? I mean, were there things that you did? You know, you had these classes that you took and things like that, and I can see that progression. But uh, were there? Did you spend a lot of out time time outdoors? Did you go camping and things like that with family and all those kinds of things? 
Yeah, my parents um, took me and my sister camping a lot and hiking and trying to really expose us to a lot of those things. Um, They spent a lot of time before we were born hiking the Long Trail, which is like this trail that goes from like the northern to this all the way to the southern end of Vermont. Um, It's like 200 something miles. So they definitely had a big influence on that and teaching us different camping skills. And then I also grew up um, skiing, like two of my uncles are ski instructors and my parents are really big into skiing. So we were just kind of always outside during all seasons of the year. (laughs) Well, you're in the perfect place to continue that, right? Yeah. is 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 an outdoor uh, paradise for, for folks. And I'm guessing you're still doing some skiing here, but maybe you're too busy to ski, right? Right. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> fully focused on schoolwork. <laughs> oh, your advisor's listening. I know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so that was the high school, um, just kind of developing. You got into uh, college and uh, went to the university there and picked up on classes and studied environmental science. And that goes back to um, the just kind of how you were brought up, right? And you spent time outdoors and, and were learning to appreciate nature. And that's all part of this trajectory to get where you're at today. And, you know, what we know in life and, and you have one of these golden tickets, if you will, you're in graduate school in Bozeman, Montana, and you're getting to work in a wonderful place. I won't mention it yet because we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. So you have this golden ticket and, and we know that, that everybody has hurdles kind of getting to this point. Right. And I wonder if you would share any kind of hurdles or, 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 or difficult times in your path to get here that, that the listeners would, 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 would like to hear about. Yeah. Um, I want to acknowledge first that like overall, I've been really privileged in my life with my circumstances growing up. Um, I feel really lucky. I had a stable home, um, really strong support network in my parents. Uh, They've like always supported me pursuing environmental science, even though my older sister, she kind of had a really straight and narrow path. Like um, she's an audiologist and always kind of knew for a long time what she wanted to do. And I'm a little all over the place, but my parents have always been really supportive of that. (laughs) And um, I also feel lucky to have grown up in such a nice state like Vermont, really beautiful and friendly people. I would say overall, the biggest hurdle that I faced was money. Um, Money was pretty tight in my family. And to be able to pursue environmental science and even go to college, I had to kind of find a way to afford it. I pretty much applied to every scholarship that I could potentially be qualified for, saved up money to cover like any costs like room and board or meal plans, things like that. So that was probably one of the bigger stressors and potential hurdles that could have prevented me from getting this far in pursuing environmental science. The financial burden can be quite a bit on folks getting to the point that you're that you're at right now, if, if, you know, the resources aren't available and scholarships aren't available and those kinds of things. So, so I'm here with Kristen Schweitzer and she is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. So now we're going to switch to, um, 
your research. And can you just tell me a little bit about what your research is on? Yeah, my research overall addresses drivers of landscape scale patterns um, in native bee community composition in Yellowstone National Park and how interactions between bees and plants uh, vary with elevation. I'll be studying seven different sites in Yellowstone across an elevational gradient. Um, And back in 2010, from 2010 to 2012, Ann Rodman, a scientist in the park, collected bee abundance and vegetation data. And so I'm going to be building on that data and then adding new field methods to kind of address these questions that I'm looking at. And overall, we're aiming to better understand which areas and conditions in the park support different bee and plant species. So you talked about seven different sites. I mean, Yellowstone's a big place. And so I was curious if you guys dialed in those spots. Do you know where those are going to be? Yeah, so they range. um, They're all in like the northern end of the park. They start at Gardner and go on to Mount Washburn. Um, The highest site is at like almost 3,000 meters on Mount Washburn, um, almost like getting towards the top. And then there's a spot on the south side of Mount Washburn that is like the most southern site. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and it's a little lower in elevation. Um, Yeah, so they're all like relatively in the same area of the park. Okay. And this elevation gradient's a big, sounds like it's a big component of your study. Yes. Right? And so what's the, can you drill down in that, drill down on that a little bit? And why is the elevation gradient so important to understand? Yeah. Um, in this research, we want to have an idea of how bees vary across a landscape and an elevational landscape is kind of a good way to do that because there are certain environmental conditions that are going to change and that we can predict how they change as they get higher in elevation. The park also monitors a lot of environmental aspects um, and we'll be able to use that data. And there's also some things already known about how bee species are impacted by elevation. So we're able to look at other studies and kind of build on that research and see what kind of bees exist at higher elevations. Are those the ones that are struggling more? Um, And then when you take into consideration climate change, that's going to have a big impact on these high elevation bee species Mm -hmm. as, because as it gets warmer, um, the ideal areas that these bee species exist are going to move higher and higher in elevation. So there's going to be some sections of bee habitat that just have nowhere to go. And so it's really important to understand what's going to happen to those bees or how we can help them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, and I don't know a lot about bees. I have a garden um, and I have a lot of perennial flowers in it. And I love the bees. I love to photograph bees as they're doing their work, you know. And I think most of the bees I'm probably photographing are um, are honeybees, which are not native to this area. I'm correct right. on that, right? Yes. And so you're focusing on the native bee, uh, native bees in Yellowstone Park. And and so I have a question about, are there certain bees that are, are, are found more often in cold climates, like at the higher elevations, and then there's different bee species that are down in the lower elevations where it might be warmer? Is there, are there species differences like that? 
Yes, there definitely are. Um, I think it depends on what kind of floral resources there are available in the high elevation habitats, like different high elevations in different parts of the world are going to have like different bee species. Um, so we're really looking to document what kind of bees are in those high elevations. There are other studies that have found that bees and high elevations might have certain traits that are giving them an advantage to live up there. Like one study talks about long-tongued bee species, um, how they were able to adapt to the high elevation because they can pollinate these flowers with long corolla tubes. Mm -hmm. Whereas like shorter tongue bee species had to originally exist at lower elevations because they weren't able to adapt to those flowers. But again, like now with climate change, the shorter tongue bee species are able to move up more because their resources are moving up as well. So an interesting thing that happened in that study was over, I think about 30 years, the tongue lengths kind of evened out. Like the the bees no longer had, the long tongue bees were getting shorter tongue lengths um, because it wasn't an advantage anymore. And they kind of had to adapt to different floral resources as well as their flowers were moving up and like out of elevation. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Unfortunately, it's, you know, what you were describing was a, a function of climate change, but it's very fascinating to see those those changes and the adaptations. Um, how do you go about sampling these bees? The main methods we're going to use are pan traps. Um, pan traps were used in the original study in 2010. So we'll at each location set out about 30 pan traps and then you leave them open. And what's, for, a pan, what's a pan trap? What is that? Uh, oh yeah. So yeah. it's like a, it's like a dish that is colored and it has like soap and water in it. So the bees get attracted to the color and so it does have like a bit of a bias because certain bees are attracted to certain colors um, as if it's like a flower mm. and they'll get trapped into it. And then we come back 24 hours later to see, to collect the bees. And it gives you an idea um, taking into account the bias of the community composition of the bees in that area. And so we'll do that. And then the second uh, methods that we're going to be using are to map out um, transects at each site. And over a period of one hour, um, we're going to be conducting observations that involve walking throughout the transect and netting any wild bees observed, um, making contact with the actual like reproductive parts of the flower so that we know they're actually pollinating it, and then recording the flower species they were visiting. So that kind of gets at the question of how do these plant B interactions specifically change over elevation? Yeah, that's very cool. Do you have to worry about grizzly bears messing with your, or black bears messing with your trays or anything like that? I mean, I know it's not sugar or anything like that, but I mean, they might be attracted to soap just checking it out. I'm guessing you have to be pretty careful. That's a good question. Yeah, I I haven't heard of them messing with pan traps, but I will talk to Anne about that to see if she had that problem in her original study. Yeah, you want to be careful. I mean, we do a fair amount of research in the park, and um, you really want to be bear aware, not to scare you, but we've had students bluff charged and all kinds of things. So Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So 
why is your research important? I mean, I, I, you, I mean, you could, you could, one could put the pieces together, right. Of what you just were mentioning and climate change and the importance of, of the resources changing and the bees changing, but what's it really boiled down to? If you, if you could kind of just pull everything together and tell the reader, this is why this research is important, not the reader, the listener, this is why this research is important. Yeah. Um, I think this research is important because the data and the results from it could help inform pollinator conservation plans in the park um, and promote the preservation of the species. It'll help us like really better understand how bees interact with specific environments and which actions would be best to help the most vulnerable vulnerable species. Mm-hmm. And when you think of, I'm thinking about a pollinator conservation plan. What's that? What's that? What would be in a pollinator conservation plan, or what would that look like? It could involve things like increasing wildflower diversity in certain areas or increasing their nesting habitat. Um, bees need like woody debris. Certain species use it for nesting, which is really important for them. Or another thing that could come out of this study is like determining which elevations need more restoration than others in terms of helping pollinators. Uh, there could be, it could be that like the highest altitude sites need the most conservation, or maybe there's other factors at play. Um, that'll be a really interesting thing to determine through our research, figuring out if like specific habitat types in Yellowstone, because it's such a diverse area, um, would be best to focus on in like such a conservation plan. Yeah. And it's such a diverse area and it's also unique in that, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's minimally, if you look at it on a big scale, is minimally affected by humans, right? I mean, obviously climate change is affecting it and things like that. But you think about, um, um, you know, um, the application of, of pesticides or, or herbicides. You're not seeing that in Yellowstone. So I'm thinking about the application of your research outside of Yellowstone for habitat restoration. Are you thinking along those lines as well? Definitely. Yeah. Um, Yellowstone, as you said, is so unique because it's got such an intact trophic structure um, because it was preserved so early on as the first national park. So it could theoretically be used as a baseline ecosystem where we're collecting data in this really preserved area and be able to use it as an example, perhaps, of how other ecosystems could be functioning or what kind of actions we could take to kind of like get other damaged ecosystems back up to a more intact level like Yellowstone. Yeah, it's, that's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your, your research and hopefully you can get out this year. Um, our, some of our research in the park's been put on hold because of the, the pandemic, but Hopefully by the time you need to go uh, out and start your sampling, you'll you'll be able to do that. Um, the last question we have is kind of for fun. And uh, what's your favorite animal, plant, or you can name one of each if you want. Okay. Um, I My favorite plant is a striped maple tree. Um, Vermont has a ton of different maple species, <laughs> but it's such a fun one because it's like, 
so weird. It's like really small for a maple tree, and but it's got giant leaves that look like goose feet. So it's like very recognizable. And I just love seeing it on hikes. Can you get syrup <laughs> from that tree? I don't think so. Okay. Maybe okay. now I'm worried because I should know this because I'm from Vermont. <laughs> right. All of a sudden you said maple and Vermont and I put it together and I'm like syrup. <laughs> <laughs> Sugar maples are the main maple species okay. that they get it from, but I think you can get, I think there's other species. Oh no, I should know. <laughs> that's okay. We don't get a lot of uh, hate mail on this podcast. So that's good. I'm going to get a lot of Vermonters writing in that's to right. correct me. <laughs> what about your animal? Uh, my favorite animal is an elephant. I just think they're really cool. I've never like actually seen one or like yeah. met one in person or anything, but they just seem awesome yeah, and really no, smart. I, I, I'm with you on the elephants, and I'm sure I would be on the striped maple tree. And if it produced syrup, I'd really be for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kristen, uh, it's been a wonderful visit, and thank you for sharing your life with us and taking the time to chat with me today. I wish you the best uh, in your studies at Montana State University and your research on native bees in Yellowstone National Park. If you enjoy the podcast, we would like to hear from you and please share a review or provide a comment at todaysvoices at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Today's Voices of Conservation Science and please spread the word about this podcast and be safe out there, everybody. <laughs>